So I think uh, this um, session we can uh, devote to any uh, maybe any questions or short comments that people would like to share uh, arising especially maybe out of the theme of change and um, so would anyone like to raise any questions at all? No, it's a, it's a very useful question. Thank you about the ego. I think the ego develops. I was at an airport uh, recently and I saw this poor young mother with two children, I think, I think about two or three years old, and they must have been traveling a long time and they were waiting in the immigration line. And uh, one of these children was, was asleep, but the other one was uh, just total monster, and uh, it was, it kept on running, it was putting on a show, it wanted everyone to look at it, uh, him I think, uh, and um, uh, attracting attention, and then the mother was trying to call it back, and he'd come back, and she was very frustrated, and anyway, so, and it was, and people were looking and maybe a little bit annoyed, but basically they accepted it as a natural, natural for a child of that age to act like that. So I think the ego develops around about that age, doesn't it? So the ego is a, so this, and, and every time she called, it, called the child back, he would, um, he would resist and he would hit her or he would say no, you know, and yet it, it, it wasn't, uh, if it was a 60-year-old man acting like that, <laughs> and there are some 60-year-old men who act like that, then uh, I think it wouldn't have been so easy to tolerate it. But, so I think the ego is a natural development in our psyche, and it's a healthy development because it allows us to separate from our mother or our father or our family with whom we have been long identified and now we begin to sense that we are, we, we are different. We don't want to go too far away, we still need boundaries, uh, but uh, so we're not going to run away yet, we sort of run away at 13, but uh, so we, but we need to test our, our space. But the important thing is the sense of, of being different and separate. So the ego, I think, is, is a necessary part of our evolution, and it does handle this uh, question of separation. And separation is painful, even when it's healthy and natural. Uh, as you move from one phase or relationship or situation from life to the next, it, <coughs> it will hurt. 
when what you have been identified with, united with, separates. There will be a, a, a scar left, like on a tree when you break a branch. So I think the ego is, is very uh, much identified with suffering because it is involved in this process of separation, but it's a separation that allows us to make deeper relationships and more uh, mature relationships. So the ego is, can also be seen as a vehicle for communicating and giving ourself to others. It's a vehicle for that. In fact, in Sanskrit, the word we often translate as ego is ahamkara, and kara, K-A-R-A, is, I think, the same uh, root of the word carriage or car. So it's a vehicle, something that carries you. Now, that's, that's the ideal way of seeing the ego. But perhaps because of the pain that is involved in separation, perhaps because the separation is not made easy by the person we, or situation, that we are separating from, so the example of a possessive mother, for example, is going to create a lot, or father or family, is going to create a lot of, uh, a lot of pain and, and arrested development. So then you get, uh, you know, in the worst possible scenario, you get sort of a, you get a, a psyche that becomes totally stuck in the ego, totally narcissistic, and can only see the world from its own point of view and is incapable of transcendence, which is the gift of self to the other. It's the ego that dies, of course, in every one of these transmissions of self, but then the ego forms again, uh, but it should be forming again at, um, in, a, in a less, uh, in a freer way. So the ego, the purpose, I think, of meditation is not to destroy the ego. If you try to destroy the ego, it's only a bigger ego that's trying to destroy it. This gives rise to the religious fanatic who might, you know, commit all sorts of austerities and punishments on himself uh, in order to go beyond desire or, you know, but is actually repressing particularly sexuality, repressing this huge force at the wrong age and uh, creates a monster. So... But uh, properly done, and the ego, we learn to transcend the ego, and we learn to make the ego a vehicle and a, to a, a servant, a, a means of communication. There was a, there's a nice Indian story of a man who did a favor for the gods, and uh, in return, the gods... Uh, gave him a servant, this magical servant, who would do anything he wanted. So wonderful. So he built a big house, he had lots of, lots of things he wanted, he was living a totally happy life, but then the servant would not leave him alone. 
the servant was constantly uh, finding him and saying, so what do you want me to do now? What should I do? What should I do? Give me something to do. Can you imagine living with someone like that? <laughs> so eventually his life became a total misery. He ended up hiding from the servant. There. And uh, so then he called on the gods and he said, you know, there's a real problem here. You gave me the servant. But so what did the gods say? They, the gods, very simple solution. He said, Set a, get a pole, and not that kind of pole, but a, a, a pole, a stick in the garden, and uh, when you don't need the, e the ego, uh, you, don't, you don't need the servant, just tell the servant to run up and down the pole. <laughs> and then when you want him to make you dinner, you say, come down and go make me dinner. So this is humorously interpreted as describing how we, we handle the ego through meditation. So, um, so you're right, I think the ego is not uh, a bad thing in itself, but it can very easily, it's like a, now is, is it a fault in the design? Uh, or is, it, is the fault itself teaching us something, making us conscious? Uh, even through the suffering that it is causing. But we learn through, uh, you know, through, through these stages, we learn what the purpose of the whole journey is. you know, actor, and we, we, we need to be able to use it, uh, we, we need masks or we have roles to, to perform and if you don't, if you're not able to perform the role, I think a waiter is a good example of that. You know, waiters who are often out-of-work actors, <laughs> um, they have this sort of theatrical uh, enjoyment of their job. Uh, and they do their job very well if they stay in their role. And you can get to know them, like them, and you know, and it's not only for them to get a tip, probably, but so there's a, there's a kind of a handling of, of the role, which is aspect of the ego. And um, that's uh, acceptable and pleasant compared with a waiter who is just 
doesn't care and uh, resents being a waiter and resents you being a customer. You know? so, so I think that, you know, there is a... Shakespeare, you know, said it, we're, we, the world is a stage and we are actors upon it. So we, are, we do interact inevitably. And if we try not to, uh, in ordinary life, we, we just end up acting another role. Uh, I think perhaps the, the only space in which we're not doing that is when we meditate together. And that's why when we meditate together, there is this uh, invisible uh, process which uh, creates um, trust and acceptance of each other's differences and, uh, and community, community in that way. How does, how does meditation change our concept of God? Well, I think it, uh, it changes uh, our concept of God by making us aware that we can't identify God with our concept. St. Gregory of Nyssa said, every image of God is an idol. And the mystical tradition, the apophatic uh, tradition, is very strong that we have to be iconoclastic at the time of meditation, of pure prayer. We, we, we break all the images. We let go of all the images of God and ideas of God that we have. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that God uh, disappears. But there is a, a change in our experiential uh, knowledge of God. Meister Eckhart said, I pray to God to rid me of God, which sums it up very well, I think. So what happens is, is that when you start thinking about God in the light of your meditation, after meditation, between meditation periods, when you start thinking or talking about God, you are learning to relate the experience, which in itself cannot be put into words, to the words that are available, or the images that are available to you for communicating the experience. So it isn't that the images and the ideas of God are or just all completely destroyed, but it means that you are able to use them uh, much better and maybe be more selective. And I think it's not only religious images or theological ideas about God that, that are enlivened as a result of, the, of meditation. I think you realize there are other ways not specifically religious, unless you think that everything is religious, but not specifically churchy or theological. Um, and you know that the experience of God is not limited to, to churchy or 
to uh, theological uh, language. So there's an expansion of your experience of God out beyond the theological language and the religious forms. Um, and then, actually, many, you actually then find that you can use, as, as with the haikus, you can use the language, the other, la other languages available to you, the language of poetry or the language of music or the language of whatever, uh, or, if you, or just being aware of this experience of God that is happening in your family or in your work, you know? So it's as if life itself becomes the language that expresses God. And the religious language, which I think for some religious people is the privileged language, and ultimately this, you know, the fundamentalist would say maybe the Bible or the Quran is the word of God and it is the supreme word of God and every, or the supreme language by which God can be expressed. And there's no other language. Everything else is secular or profane. But I think meditation shatters that. It also sends you back to the scriptures with a new sensitivity and a new perception of its meaning, which is wonderful, but it also opens up many other kinds of vocabulary for you. Um, we heard you speaking a lot this week about stillness as being the condition um, where transformation can, can take place. And um, I, I sort of had a question is, are we differentiating between stillness and silence? Um, or is it, you know, something added to silence? Um, just, just wondering about that. Hmm. I think they... they uh The word hezekiah can be translated either as silence or stillness. And maybe silence, you could say, was the, the inner side, uh, and stillness is the outer side of the experience. Um, but they, where you have one, you will have the other. I mean, when you're, when you're silent, uh, you are more, I mean, even when you're physically silent, not talking and controlling your chatty, chatter, chatter, then um, your attention be inevitably becomes more focused, more still. So your mind becomes a little more still. It begins to slow down. And then if you persevere with it and don't get frightened, some people get frightened, I think, of slowing down, get frightened of becoming still, so they sort of see meditation just as a process of slowing down or 
a retreat even just as a process of slowing down and, and not going any further. But if, if, if we're not frightened of it, then the, the slowing down, which becomes uh, it maybe a moment's complete, complete stillness. And um, now the stillness can happen at any moment, of course, but usually it happens as, as part of a process. Um, so stillness you could also associate with a transcendence of desire because when we're thinking of what am I going to do, what am I going to have for lunch or what shall I do next or I, I'd like to do that, I'd like to do this or I want that or I want to go there. Uh, there's a, a constant move, movement of the mind as you imagine these things and you project yourself into them and then you, so the mind becomes very busy with its desires. So stillness, by focusing upon the present, or in the present, uh, does take us beyond desire. And we find, beautifully, that actually we don't need desire. We don't need to spend so much time desiring things to make us happy, uh, because there is such a great deal of delight in the present moment, in the stillness. Before? Apart from... Apart from meditation. Uh, well, not apart from meditation, but the resistance change in a character. I think uh, looking at the resistance, if you're aware of it, uh, and before it... Uh, you know, maybe the resistance is, is a pattern and it will, it will arise uh, at certain moments and then prevent you from doing something. Uh, but if before that happens, you can call it to mind and analyse it a bit and understand it and be prepared for its next appearance because you know it's going to happen again. So just accept that. So, um, here on the retreat, we've accepted, uh, and I think uh, happily, the, uh, the, the times of meditation, the times of the meals, and so on. So, we've accepted the schedule. Um, but when we go back to the real world, um, we will inevitably feel at times, I don't, you know, we, a resistance to stopping for meditation or resistance to, other, or to doing other things like our spiritual reading or whatever that we know we want to do. So I think to anticipate uh, those surges of resistance and try to analyse them, catch them when they, as soon as they begin to arise. 
So you're just kind of guarding the heart and being observant uh, of this, what you call resistance uh, in oneself and knowing maybe the times of the day or knowing the sorts of conditions in which they are, what, tr what triggers them, what triggers it. And, uh, and become, become friends with it, actually. It's rather than thinking, this is the devil, you know, trying to stop me from doing what I want to do or should do, uh, just to see it as a little glitch in your own software and um, accept it and uh, you see, I think the, the, the meditation is like this, um, these software, these, these malware, they, what do they call them, these um, virus checks. And um, so we've all got these little viruses that pop up and make, make unpleasant things happen on our computer at times. Uh, so we need this constant scanning and checking, which happens, I think, unconsciously during the meditation. And you know, some, if you do a complete scan of your computer, it takes a long time, doesn't it? To go all the way through the uh, hard drive. So the meditation doesn't, uh, it doesn't clear everything out at once, and it requires regular practice. But as soon as you begin to meditate, you begin to be aware become more aware of these patterns. And uh, then I think, see the pattern, check it, catch it, and then, you know, at times you can, you can f you'll feel tremendously free because you can catch it before it, uh, it catches you. And it's more understanding and insight than, than an act of the will. If you think of it just as an act of the will, it becomes really tiresome and painful. But if you, if you see that what changes is and frees you from it is insight, ex acceptance, prudent awareness that this is going to come again, you're not going to get rid of it forever, but through mindful awareness of, of the pattern, you can catch it in time. That makes sense. Meditating alone or meditating uh, with others. I think, in a way, they are two sides of the same coin. And um, one side is solitude, which is recognizing and embracing your uniqueness. So you're not just a type, you're not just a statistic, um, you're not just a case. 
you, there's something unique about you, and that may be challenging to accept because it may be easier to think of yourself as um, just a type. Uh, and then you can avoid uh, yourself and avoid the process of change or see change only as an external thing. But as soon as we... Uh, I remember a, a young uh, student I had a couple of years ago who said, um, an undergraduate, and she said she had had no religious training in her life at all, but she said through doing the meditation, we only did a short meditation in every class, but it had a big impact on her. It was the best part of the class. Uh, she said... Um, it made her aware for the first time that she had an inner life. And that led her to think about even the word God, which she'd never thought about before. So uh, I think meditation does awaken this interiority, and it isn't long before you realize that this interiority has a solitary aspect to it, something unique. So the first thing you have to... That's why it is actually good and helpful to meditate on your own, physically on your own, from time to time. Or most, most people have to do it most of the time. But the other side of the coin is community, because, of course, and relationship, and why we see the uh, effects and benefits of meditation in our relationships before everything else, before anything else. First of all, our relationship with ourselves. Our relationship with ourselves is a funny thing to speak about in a sense, because we are who we are, but we also have a relationship with our bodies, with the processes of change that are taking place in us, in our minds, what we're learning, what we're struggling with, with our faults, with our uh, problems. Uh, so we do have a, rela a relationship with ourselves. And um, so, but as soon as that relationship with ourselves begins to change, we notice a change in our relationship with others. And a deepening and improvement of our relationship with ourselves inevitably improves our re relationship with others, and so on, in an ever expanding ripple effect. So I think they are related, the solitary aspect of meditation and the relational aspect of meditation. So I think it's very difficult to understand or to work deeply at this interior aspect, the relationship with yourself through meditation, the solitude, without also having times of meditating with others. And uh, St. Benedict says, you know, you, spend, you, you join the, the monastery and the community in order to, to learn with the friendship and the love and the correction of others how to go out to do the single-handed combat of the desert. So for him, becoming a hermit was the goal of the monastic life. Now, exactly what he means by that is a little unclear because at times he seems to say that life in the community itself is 
sufficient. So maybe the solitude can be lived out within community, and you certainly see some of the old monks here, uh, in, you know, ripen into a beautiful, a beautiful place, a beautiful soli solitude, but a very loving, compassionate, and helpful solitude, and they're very useful and helpful to the to the young guys who are coming in and just beginning to uh, discover uh, themselves. So, so solitude doesn't only mean physical withdrawal, but it would mean the capacity to be on your own physically without getting into a panic. Being able to, you know... Uh, and I think a lot of people, depending on their lifestyle, don't have that. Or if the lifestyle changes and they're forced into it, it can be, they find it very disturbing. So I think there's, a, there's a, a give and take, there's a relationship between solitude and community, between meditating on your own and meditating with others. Many people will say, I think most people say they find meditating with others is easier. Some people say, I find meditating with others really irritating because <laughs> they're always making noise. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it depends a bit on your temperament. But I, I, I think we need both, actually. Do you think change is always possible at any age or, or at any condition of mind? Is change always possible at any age or condition of mind? I, I think it is, actually, yes. It may not be where you want to change, but if you do want to change, you will change somewhere, somehow. Like St. Paul, um, after he had had his great mystical experience, said he still had a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't say what it was. So something he wanted to change, and he prayed to God, please get rid of this thorn in the flesh, because then I will be perfect, and I can be the best apostle you've ever had, and uh, spread your word. And uh, it didn't work. God didn't take this thorn out of his flesh. Um, and then he came to understand, and this is change, he came to understand that this thorn in the flesh was actually a good thing because it kept him humble and it made him realize that the power of God is manifest in human weakness, not in human perfection. So that was the change. Now he, it wasn't the change he wanted. He wanted to be perfect. But instead, he learned how to be humble. Yes, well, uh, desire, as we were saying, uh, desire is one of those words. Decision. Well, there's a decision in it and an insight, I think, behind it. See, St. John the Cross says that um, as we go deeper into this work of contemplation, we must let go of all desire, even the desire for God. Uh, now, St. John is a doctor of the church, but if you said that in most churches, 
uh, without saying it was St. John of the Cross, uh, <laughs> they would say you're not a good Catholic or you're not a good Anglican. Uh, but there's a sense in that, and I think uh, we, we, we should try to understand the meaning of what he's saying. This is very much how John Main uses it as well. However, St. Augustine says the Christian life is one constant, holy desire for God. So what does, how do we use the word desire in these two, in these two cases? So uh, the way I try to make sense of it is to think that uh, what we mean by desire is is often um, ambiguous. So, let's say we have a wound. Say, this, the pain of separation or the pain of loss. Maybe it happened very early in our life. And the pain of that and the longing for what we didn't have or the, what was taken away from us maybe the death of a parent or something, you know, some abuse or something that happened in us or to us even before we were fully conscious or able to process it. So that, uh, that remains with us as we evolve. So there's a hunger there. There's, there's a longing for something, for what we didn't have or what we want back. And it's not going to happen. You can't go back and fix things in the past. You can only fix things now. So, but what happens is, because of this pain, or this longing, this hunger, desire for something that we may not even be very conscious of what it is, we produce desires. We produce images, fantasies, ideas about what would satisfy this hunger what would take away this pain. And then we begin this whole sort of intricate uh, family tree of, of desires, one leading to another. And we may pursue, we may think, okay, if I become prime minister, I will uh, satisfy this, this longing I have for affirmation, for, for recognition, for success, okay, whatever it may be. But then when you become prime minister, or you become, or you become CEO, whatever, uh, or you get the married to the person of your dreams, that actually doesn't happen. And you feel this, it, the pain may be taken away for a while, but it comes back and so, then we develop a second generation of desires, which are an attempt to do the same thing, but they become more and more complicated then, maybe ending up in addiction as well. So, I mean, that's one way of seeing it. Um, now, what do we do in meditation? So, in that sense, I think St. John of the Cross is right. We have to get rid of all desires. So we have to, now meditation is like walking through this jungle of desires and fantasies that we have 
and complications. It's like walking through the jungle with a machete, but too violent an image, uh, and just cutting your way through. So you're not looking at every desire or every plant uh, and analyzing it and saying, you know, you're just cutting through it. A narrow little path that leads to life. And saying the mantra is, uh, is a way to walk that path. And then, I think what happens is, at times, of course, you get, you get hooked by one of these desires, or you get off the, off the track, or you may even start to develop a set of desires about the meditation itself. I want the meditation to give me an experience of God who I desire so much, but the image of God that I have that is going to satisfy my desire for God is, is just a desire. It's an image of God. It's so in that sense, we have to let go even of the desire for God. So we keep, and that's where you know, the teaching of the mantra is radically simple, and few they are who understand it. So, we all understand it to a certain degree, but... So anyway, then what happens is, I think you, you, you cut your way through, and eventually, you may in the process, you will in the process, come up against or, or, or enter into areas of yourself where the primal wounds were inflicted. This is, this is the root cause of all the desires, of all the mistakes you made, of all the fantasies you've had. This is where it came from. So what happens there? What happens there, and this is, this is not analysis, it's not psychoanalysis. I mean, the purpose of psychoanalysis is to get you to that point after 30 years of seeing your analyst three times a week. Uh, and that may be another way of doing it. But meditation is uh, cheaper and more direct and more demanding is more demanding, and that's why we need this little group of people to travel with, who are also doing the same thing. So, so say, say you come into contact then with this space where your need, the primal need that you had, was not met, or some something was inflicted or some habit was formed at a very early stage in your development, through no fault of your own. Um, so what happens there is that if you continue with the work of meditation, when you have reached that quite sensitive space, and you just do the work there without trying to analyze it or solve the problem. I think what happens is, is that it is there 
at this weak, apparently, and fright maybe uh, in a way frightening and vulnerable place in us, St. Paul, that we meet the power of God. And so this need that we have, which we could call a desire, but it's, it's an unsatisfiable desire. If you didn't have something when you were three years old, you're not going to get it now. So it's an unsatisfiable desire. So it isn't even really a desire. It's a need. It's an unmet or distorted or messed up need. Or trauma, yeah, trauma. Exactly, yeah. And then, but in touch with that, simply being in touch with it, simply sitting with it, uh, the, uh, uh, something happens. Grace happens. And the grace that happens in that place heals. He heals it. It doesn't give you what you should have had when you were two years old, of course, but it does, it does uh, lift you through that um, place of incompleteness or that place of suffering. It lifts you to a greater wholeness in which you accept this. It's like the wounds are wounds. The wounds remain wounds, but they are no longer hurting. So Jesus appears to the disciples carrying his wounds on his body, but we don't, we don't believe that they are hurting him still, but they're still there. And they have a completely different meaning now. So, I mean, that's one way of now, you could say, I think at this point, too, you, you actually contact at those very vulnerable, personal, intimate, sort of maybe unknowable parts of ourselves. We contact our fundamental need, which, may not, which was not the need for this or for that that we didn't have, but it's a fundamental need for love, for God, for wholeness. Now, you could call that a desire, but at that point, it's just need. You could say it's pure desire, because you're not trying to possess it. It's just what you need. It's like when you're really hungry. Um, are you desiring food, or do you just need food? I mean, it's not like stuffing yourself with food when you don't need it in order to numb other desires that you, that you are trying to avoid. Um, so it's a, it's a, if you like, it's a desire for God, but it's, uh, at the, this very, it's poverty of spirit. It's really at this point of... And then when we touch that, the miracle of healing happens because as soon as we enter into contact with that place or that part of ourselves, uh, it is fulfilled. You know, so uh, <laughs> uh, ask and you will receive, knock and the door will be opened. So there is a, 
there's a certainty and an immediacy even of healing, satisfaction, of, of being put right at that point. So meditation, I think, just takes us through the jungle. Uh, that's why we lay aside all thoughts and desires and images. Takes us right through to these places of, uh, of, of contact. Okay. Susan, you should have uh, been keeping better timing with this, yes. <laughs>